They say you can learn a lot from a person by how they live. By watching their actions and reactions, how they respond in the moment, what they do in the face of opposition. And if this person is worthy of imitation, worthy of becoming like, worthy of taking our cues, the only way then is to get to know them by following their directions and by listening to their instructions. And if we want to be just like Jesus, we need to get to know him too. We need to read how he responded in the moment, what he did in the face of opposition, how he lived, how he spoke, his actions and reactions. You want to be just like Jesus? Follow him. Um, As Mitch uh, pointed out um, earlier, this has been Family Worship Sunday, and I want to say thanks to all the kids who have been part of the services. They've done a great job um, just paying attention, being involved, and it never fails. I'm walking in, you know, and somebody grabs me. He's like, can I do the illustration today? And so uh, can I help with the sermon? And so Henley's asked me today. She was the first one to grab me. So Henley, come up here and help me out here. Um, as she's coming up this way, uh, just to uh, let those know what this drawing is all about that she's going to help me with, um, I, did, I sent an email out. I always send a Monday email out, and it's a follow-up on the sermon and it's uh, just kind of, a, a, kind of a different angle to take home, think about, apply what we're learning on Sunday into our daily week. And so uh, anyway, the end of the last Monday email, I'd put in there, hey, email me. Um, I want to give you a, a nice journaling Bible. We'll do a drawing if more than one of you respond. And, and so we actually had a pretty good response on that. And so I've got a really nice journaling Bible, and uh, Henley is going to um, help me out here by drawing a name. Do you like presents? Do you do? Do you like you like to get presents or give the best? Which one? That's a trick question, isn't it? I should not have asked that question. All right. Right. It's good to give and to get, right? So you're going to give this away today to somebody, okay? So that's a nice journaling Bible. You want to hold that? Now you're going to draw a name right here. Just randomly pick one of these one of these pieces of paper. All right. Let's see who we got here. We got Brady Hare. I don't think he's here today, but I told him he could win without being here. He has to work on Sundays during the, during the um, winter season. So Brady gets the Bible, a nice journaling Bible here. Uh, great, great. And uh, you know what make this illustration even better? If I had a present for you, wouldn't it? Do you think, do you think I should give you a present? You like Chick-fil-A? You like Chick-fil-A? All right, I got you a Chick-fil-A gift card. All right, here you go. All right. Give her a hand. All right, thank you. You can have a seat. Thanks. Yeah, everybody loves presents, all right? Don't lie. I mean, we like to get presents. We like to sometimes give presents, but we definitely like to get presents. All right, well, I, I want to um, really highlight today a different kind of a, kind of a slant on this word, a play on this word, is how that our presence, our presence is more important than sometimes presence. Our us being in the moment with people, engaged Serving God is a gift that we can give that is unlike any materialistic gift that we can provide. It's unlike anything that we can, we can um, give to someone that can make their life better. Us investing in their lives. In fact, that's the way that God did it for us, right? I mean, Emmanuel, we sing Emmanuel. What does that mean? It means God with us. All right, so God didn't send somebody. God didn't send some stuff to take care of the sin problem. God came in the person of Jesus Christ. He gave his presence to us. He gave himself to us. And so God's presence in us, working through us, 
That's his plan for the world, to make disciples. Did you know that? He said, go into all the world and make disciples. He told his disciples to do that. He tells us to do that, for us to go and involve, be involved in people's lives. And so today, as we look at a passage of Scripture that, has, that we see where Jesus actually stops, slow downs, interacts with someone who would normally have not been on anyone else's radar, we see that Jesus is doing this very thing. So we, like Jesus, can change the world if we give what matters most, our presence to people. And so we're back in Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52, and we're going to look at giving the gift of, our, of relationship, giving the gift of presence. And so we're starting in verse 46 of chapter 10. Today we'll finish off chapter 10. And they came, this is Jesus and his disciples along with other people, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, I'm just going to pause right there, he's leaving Jericho, the city of Jericho, with a great crowd. He's headed, go to that map, next screen to that map. He's headed to Jerusalem, all right, and this is about 14 to 16 miles that he's headed up to Jerusalem is the word because Jerusalem is about a... um, 3,300 feet climb um, up this mountain, these mountains, set of mountains, and Jesus in this procession of people, they're all going on this way, this Jericho Road is what it's called. And a lot of the people who were headed there, more than likely, were headed there for Passover. All right, Passover is coming up. We're very, very short distance out from the cross here, probably only a week or so away from Jesus going to the cross. And so we have right here leading up, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the last time. You remember a couple weeks ago, and Jeremy mentioned it again last week, is that Jesus had set his sights on Jerusalem. It said that he had turned and he was headed there. He was with intent, with purpose. He was going to fulfill his destiny. So that's the scene here is Jesus, a couple weeks ago, we saw was he's out in front a few verses back. He's leading the way. That's unusual. Jesus is in the front of the pack. They're following and now he's with a, a great group of people, and they're tracking up to Jerusalem. And we see that in verse 46, that along the way, he comes across this guy named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is beside the road. He's a blind beggar. Verse 46 says, the son of Timaeus. And he was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling for you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth, that gives us purpose, that gives us light. God, I pray that you will open our hearts today to your words, God. I pray that your your very life will just penetrate into our hearts oftentimes hard hearts, even on a Sunday morning where it's rainy and it's dreary, we can, our minds can be a thousand miles away and we can be thinking about all the other stuff in the season that we need to do, God. And I pray that you will slow us down, that you will calm us to hear what you have to say today, God. 
I pray that you will be glorified and honored in our week, in all the things that we do, in our work, in our fun, in our celebrations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my uh, favorite movies of all time is a movie called Groundhog Day, which came out in the early 90s, and many of you probably have seen it. But I love this one scene where Phil Connor, that's the, his character's name, he's hanging out in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania there. He's, he's there for Groundhog Day. He's a reporter. He's hanging out with a couple of the locals, and Phil is struggling to adapt to this new reality that it looks like he's going to be in Puxatawney for, for eternity. He's, he's going to be reliving the same day over and over and over again. And he's hanging out with these two locals, and he asks these guys, he said, what would you do if you were stuck in one place and, exact, and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? And the one guy, Ralph, looks at him and he says, that about sums it up for me. All right, and, and I don't know if you feel that way right now, but many times during the holiday season, many people start to feel like you're in a rut. You feel like that I'm just going through the motions, I'm just doing the stuff, I seem a little gloomy, I shouldn't be gloomy this time of year, but I feel just a little down. And, you know, ruts happen in life, ebb and flow of just living life, but spiritual ruts are a different thing altogether. Spiritual rut, many Christians find themselves in spiritual ruts where they're just apathetic to the things of God, where that they can read the word, they can look into the word, but they feel like that, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's just a monotonous routine. I lack any kind of passion for the things of God. And, and, and that's a problem to find yourself in that situation. And you need to be honest with yourself if you do find yourself there. What's interesting is that uh, there was this huge study of church uh, people a few years back and this study was a three-year-long study looking at church people and how they grow and how they're discipled and so on. And in this study, it was interesting to note that people who came to Christ, they were very, very excited about church. They were very, very excited about what God was showing them. And they, as they got called up into the, 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 the church and the community, there was a tremendous growth in their Christian life. There was tremendous growth in their discipleship. But what they found in the study, interestingly, which you would think maybe would be the opposite, is those who um, really considered themselves very devoted to God, very, uh, very good disciples, very passionate about Jesus, these people became very dissatisfied with their church. They became very dissatisfied with, with sometimes even with faith. They kind of lost their zeal, and they were just kind of, um, just going through the motions, they felt the word that was used in the study, they felt stalled by where they were at spiritually. And, and that's a problem. I would say that's a spiritual rut to feel just I'm stalled spiritually. And if you're in that situation today, I want this passage to speak to you. And I also want to refer to the words of Jesus to show you what the opposite of a spiritual rut is. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus said this, he says, I tell you the truth, the son, referring to himself, can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. So Jesus Christ, being God, sets an example for us. He says, I don't do anything on my own. I only do what I see the father doing. What God tells me to do, that's the things I do. That's what I respond to. And so I think a spiritual rut is just failing to see God's purposes, that God has a will for you in day-to-day, everyday, mundane life. 
And he also wants you to find joy in him, in your, in your knowledge of him, in your experience with him. And the, being in a rut is the opposite of joy. And being in a rut spiritually is the opposite of living in expectation for what God wants to do in you and through you. And so today, as we look at Jesus as the ultimate model to imitate in this, I also want to look at this guy named Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, because I think there's a lot we can learn from him also. Unlike the disciples who were still struggling, even up to this point, to truly grasp Jesus as the Son of God, truly understand what he's about. He's told them again and again, I'm going to die on the cross, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, yet we see even last week, they're still asking, okay, what's my place in the kingdom? All right, can I have this place of prominence? Can I have this place of prestige? And, and they're quite the opposite of Barnabas, who shows incredible faith, incredible courage, and true discipleship. And what's interesting in the passage last week and in the passage today, which follows one after another, is Jesus says the exact same expression. He asked the disciples, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them that. And they responded, Jesus, we want the high place in your kingdom. We want a great place. That was in verse 36, last week's passage. We want to be great. We want to be important. But he turns around in verse 51 now, and he asks Barnabas, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Barnabas, what do, we want, what do we want me to do for you? And Barnabas is a picture of everything Jesus has been talking about throughout this passage. That you remember the first shall be last, the greatest shall be the least. Barnabas was literally the least of these. Here's a guy on the side of the road begging. He's pretty much ignored by most people, yet he gets Jesus' attention. A couple things. Why? First, he recognizes who Jesus is. He calls him the son of David, not just once, but twice. And it's kind of implied in the passage he may have said that more. He gets it. How does he get it? I mean, this blind guy on the curb who has insignificant, who, who people don't even pay attention to, how does he know enough to recognize Jesus as the son of David? I'm not sure, but it's a pretty significant thing. So he clearly believes Jesus also can help him. He's calling out. He's yelling out. He doesn't care what people think. Here's this huge group of people going by. And Jesus, this popular, famous rabbi of the day, and here he's just screaming out, Jesus, help me. Jesus, I need your attention. And then in verse 50, I think it is super significant that he gets up, he leaves his, his begging, he leaves his cloak behind, which is insignificant to us, but it's amazing. Verse 50, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. The cloak that he had would have been this guy's most prized possession, more than likely. This cloak that he had not only protected him from the elements, but it was also the way that he collected his money. He would lay this, he would sit down and he would allow this, this, this cloak to be draped out and people would dump their money into his cloak so he could bundle it up and take it and that would, would be how he survived and how that he lived. And so this was not only his, his shelter, I mean this was his, the way he did his livelihood. This was who he was. This was his identity. More than likely, this was possibly even government-issued for him by the, by the Romans. Yet we see in verse 50 that he's still blind here, okay? This is, he's not seeing yet, but he throws off his cloak, he springs up, and he heads to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been blindfolded before or not, but you don't typically spring up and start moving in a direction, do you? That's not the words that normally describe someone 
who can't see. You're in the dark, you're at night, it's, it's super dark, you can't turn a light on, and you're walking around gingerly. You're trying to just make sure you don't run into anything. You're being very careful. You're, you're just maneuvering very, very cautiously. We did this thing back when I was a youth pastor for a game one time. We set up the room with a bunch of obstacles, and we had three different people who were going to participate in walking through the obstacle blindfolded, and they could watch each other doing it, but we would turn and move everything around uh, as each contestant came up to do the, the obstacle course. Well, the first two people went through it, and then the third one, we removed everything out of the room. It was completely empty, that space was, yet the person, you know, blindfolded, they were still, you know, they were ready to bang into stuff, and, and they were trying to maneuver around things. They weren't sure exactly how to act, and then when we removed their blindfold, and the room was completely empty. I mean, that's just the way we respond when we can't see, yet it's not so with Barnabas. He springs up, and he rushes to Jesus. Awesome leaving his identity, leaving his cloak behind. And then verse 52, and immediately Jesus gave him his, he restored his sight, his sight was recovered. And what does he do next that we can look at and say, this is a model of discipleship. He followed Jesus on the way. He followed Jesus on the way. He heads to Jerusalem with Jesus. And so we see from this guy, Barnabas, that he knew probably the cost for sure of following Christ. He, he knew enough to know Jesus was the son of David. He probably recognized that Jesus, following Jesus was going to cost him something. That Jesus was not the person that the religious establishment, the power players of the day, were supporting and were behind. And he may even heard some of Jesus' sermons along the way to know that he had to take up his cross and follow Jesus. He understood that Jesus was the promised son of David, who had come to restore all things, including his lost eyesight. So he was this example of this persistent faith. Now, while the, the disciples are definitely examples, they're examples of having given up everything to follow Jesus for sure, yet we have continually seen where they just don't firmly get this idea that to be great, you have to be the least. And here's Barnabas, who is already the least, and Jesus says, Okay, you're, you're make, make you whole, make you, give you your sight back, and he follows Jesus. Because when Jesus truly opens our spiritual eyes, we're eager to throw off our former identity and follow him. When Jesus calls us and we follow him and we're in discipleship with him, we're willing to throw off our former identity and follow him. You know, let's make that real practical. And we talk about this a lot here, that so many times in the South, it's so easy to profess Jesus, but not really follow Jesus. That you can claim, I'm a Christian, you go talk to most of the people that you work with probably, and you ask them, are you a Christian? And they'll be, yeah, I, I'm a Christian because I prayed a prayer one time, and I went to this revival service, or this or that. But yet there's no fruit in their life. They're not involved in a church community. They're not doing life with Christ. They're not pursuing Christ yet they still claim that they're in, they're, 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 they're a Christian. And the thing is, when Jesus truly calls you, you've had a whole identity change. What does Scripture say? It says we've been removed from the kingdom of darkness. This kingdom of darkness is controlled by Satan to a kingdom of light. And he says the old things are gone, the new things have begun in Corinthians. He says that we're no longer who we are, we're, we're dead to our former life, dead to our former self. So this scripture paints this huge contrast between someone who doesn't know Christ and someone that does know Christ. And so this idea of just, I, I said a prayer I'm in, but now I'm going to live my life, just doesn't fly in scripture. 
it shows that you've been given this new identity, and not only that, you've been given the very person of God in you, the Holy Spirit, to help you live out this life and should give you a desire to follow Jesus in very practical ways, serving Jesus. And so we have Barnabas, who's this picture of understanding this coming from the most meager and humble of circumstances and situation. He's a, he's a, a perfect picture of someone who knows that he needs Jesus. He's desperate for Jesus. Interesting about Barnabas, uh, this is the only time in Mark where the person who Jesus heals, they actually refer to him by name. And many Bible scholars believe this is, this is intentional, that this guy, Barnabas, was known in the churches. He was, as this was being read, or as Peter spoke this sermon, and Mark is jotting these things down, people knew Barnabas. I mean, he was this guy in their community. He was in the, in the church community, possibly many think, in, in Rome. And what's interesting, not to get bore you with the details here, but the, just the very wording of this, you got a guy named Bartimaeus, and he's the son of who? Timaeus, right? So that's kind of redundant to say Barnabas, the son of Timaeus, because that's one and the same. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. And so many think this implies that even this beggar's father had become a believer. He was part of the church community as well. And so I, I point that out to say that it seems like as we've walked through the Gospels, that Jesus is very intentional about those people who he makes a beeline or he says, hey, you come here to me. I've got, I've got something for you specifically. I mean, he teaches to the masses. He does the Sermon on the Mount. But there's certain people where he just hones in on. Um, I was talking to Buzz uh, a couple of days ago, and he reminded me back in chapter 5, you had the guy we refer to, not a really flattering term, the maniac of Gadara, you know, the guy who was demon-possessed. And Jesus hops in a boat. Remember, he calms the sea, goes across the Sea of Galilee. He lands on the other side. And he goes in, and he casts the demons out of this guy. And what happens next? This guy's like, man, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm coming with you. And what does Jesus say? No, I need you to stay right here in your area, in the Decapolis. I need you to stay here because I want you to be a missionary to this area. And we talked about this back in chapter 5, but history records, and there's strong evidence to point to the fact that this maniac of Gadara was such a good missionary that he evangelized many, many, had a huge and massive impact on that region. And so Jesus, being led by the Father's prompting, it's not just random that he says, okay, you, come on, let's talk for a second. It's not random. He's in tune with his Father, just like we read in John, that he does what he sees the Father is doing. He responds to the Father. And so as he's being led and as, as the Father says, right here, this is one for my kingdom. This is someone who is specifically going to make an impact for me. And Jesus is aware of that. And so he's on his journey to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. He's headed there to die. He's going to give his life. This, this event that everything in history has been pointing to, this massive event of the cross, he knows this is ahead, yet he pauses, he stops in this big crowd for this one blind guy, this outcast, this guy who was ceremonially unclean by the standard. Jesus, verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you. He's calling you. And so Jesus modeled here what I want to call the art of, of stopping. The art of stopping. As opposed to the art of 
quick handshakes and playing the crowd, working the crowd, doing the thing on Sunday morning. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. See you next week. Good. See you. All right. Have a good week. Have a Merry Christmas. That's the way that we typically operate. We're the art of going and busy and doing. Yet we see Jesus sets an example of the art of stopping, pausing. Um, someone was sharing in our kid group the other day that it's amazing. She was saying that when I really truly pause and like look somebody in the eye on Sunday morning and say, how are you doing? I better be ready for a pretty long conversation because people have a lot on their hearts. And that's where a lot of discipleship takes place is these conversations where we're willing to say, you know what, I'm, yes, I'm going to lunch, but I'm going to pause here for a second and I'm going to listen and maybe share and encourage, pray, cry even with this person who may need it at the moment. And so we need to really be about two things if we're going to model Jesus in this area. To refer back to that study that I referred to earlier, this study concluded, which I've shared some of this before, but it it shared that the number one thing, if a church can do anything at all to help people grow in their walk with God, here it is, help people become self-feeders. Help them begin to be able to take in the word of God themselves. I mean, that's not at the expense of going to church and being a part of the church body at all, but they're saying if there's one indicator that someone is really tracking with God and following Jesus in discipleship, if, there, if we can say there's one key track here point, it's this idea, do, are they spending time in God's word? Here's what they said from the study. They said, nothing has a greater impact on spiritual growth than personal reflection on scripture. If churches could do only one thing to help people at all spiritual levels uh, grow in maturity in their relationship with Jesus, the choice is clear. They would inspire, encourage, and equip their people to read the Bible, specifically to reflect on Scripture for meaning in their lives. And sadly, it points out that only one in five church attenders read their Bible daily. One in five church members read their Bible daily. Well, if you're in a spiritual rut, let me just help you out with the, the easy answer here, all right? First of all, are you, are you reflecting on God's word? Are you worshiping him in scripture? I mean, it's bread and butter, basic stuff. But the truth is, until that begins to happen, you're not going to really expect to say, God, I'm in tune with what you're doing here. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm living my life. I'm living my day in tune with you. And so I'm going to be more aware of what's going on around me as you modeled for us. So when... I need to be inconvenienced by this person or that God, I I feel like you're asking me to kind of go out of my way to talk to that person or reach out to them or invite them to lunch or go with them after church to to lunch today after church. I'm going to do those things because I'm aware of what God is about. He's about people. He loves people. He said, go and make disciples of all people. And so we're actually doing that and we're slowing down from our agenda and we're looking with God eyes and we're saying, God, show me. Help me really concretely apply this into my life. That's what we do. Now, last week, some of you who were here in the membership meeting, you may have noticed at the bottom, you filled out that you marked how many days a week that you read scripture. I'm here to report from our membership. It was a pretty, go ahead with that graph. It was actually a pretty solid turnout response. I was pretty pleased with this. 71% of our members reported spending five or more days a week in personal Bible study. That's, that's, I think that's a good, solid number. So you see 
Seven days a week, you're in Scripture. That's that's so important. If we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, you have to be a self-feeder. You have to be in God's Word and allowing God to speak to you through His Word by the Holy Spirit's power. That has to be happening. In that email that I referred to earlier that I sent out, where I kind of um, did the, the little thing where the people could respond about the journaling Bible, I gave five practical things that will help you in your Bible reading. I actually was geared to get toward listening toward sermons and applying the sermon, but it applies to Bible reading as well. Let's go through these again. One, ask God, Lord, speak to me. I'm listening. And it's very simple. As you sit down with your Bible, start out by saying, God, I believe you exist, and you reward those who diligently and earnestly seek you. That's what you said in Hebrews. I'm asking you, open my heart to hear from your word today. Because we can read the words, but the words never make it into our hearts. They never bring about change. The second thing I mentioned in about uh, the sermon and really allowing the sermon to stick with you was to take notes. And the same thing is true. And, and I like the, the study Bible idea, but take notes to, to jot down things that are important to you. If, you. if you use a Kindle, you can add little notes right there into your book. You can make notes of the things that God is pointing out to you as you read. Using your Bible, it's pretty neat to have your Bible and, and have those margins on the side. You're marking up things that you heard in sermons, and later on you're back reading that yourself, and you're looking, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I, I get that. Wow, that's amazing. And you're reminded of God's faithfulness and his goodness and the way that he's led you throughout the years. Three, do what the Bible says. Think of some concrete ways in which you can obey the word. Write it down and return to these past entries from time to time. Again, that's why I like the study Bible that I can put down concrete things and then those things can be right there forever in my Bible and I revisit those things and see those things and see what God has kind of led me to do as a result of obeying his word. So it's James. Don't be just hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. And then reread the Bible passages from Sunday. That's why we go through and teach the Bible verse by verse. It, it, it gives it to us in context It helps us to see how it all fits together, that it's God's story. It's not, let me grab a few verses for my health, wealth, and prosperity here. These will make me, you know, do better in life. And and we grab out our favorite verses because God knows the plans for us, says the Lord, right? Plans to prosper us, gives us hope in the future, right? And we're like, yeah, I'm all about that. But yet we don't see, like a couple of verses earlier, they're going to be in Babylon 70 more years before that comes to fruition. And many of the people who are getting that promise are going to be dead, all right, and so the, the plans I have for you to, to give you hope in a future, for some people, that didn't materialize the way that they thought it was going to materialize, you know, if they just read that one prophecy, right? They, they heard the whole prophecy. And so read in context, and that's what we study in context, and that's why you should go back and reread the Bible passages, and then read the Monday emails. They're good reminders because, I, like I said, for those who did read the email, last week was a good kind of me sitting in your seat, because most of the time when I'm not preaching, I'm out of town. And so last Sunday, I just needed a break. I had a lot of sermons to do with Christmas Eve, fill by night, and so on. And so it was nice just to sit there. But I intentionally listened as if I sat there every Sunday. And, and, and I didn't go back and reread. I was like, okay, what stuck with me on Monday as I sit down on my computer to type that email? And it's really helpful to just have some time to reflect. But all of you don't have that time to do that. And so I kind of help you do that and get that started by here's what yesterday was about. Here's kind of maybe starting applying it. 
And then, again, just starting new practices, new habits, new rhythms in your life where you're in God's word and you've established the habit, the routine of it. Not a routine that just going through the motions, but a routine that says, God, speak to me. I'm listening. I want you to speak to my heart. So we said the number one thing that we could do was what? It was to be in the word, be a self-feeder. Well, the number two thing the study said was help Christians get into accountable relationships. A a discipler, someone who's going to come into their life and help them um, to apply the truth and, and hold them accountable to the truth. We call that here, we call that fight club. It, that's our, our opportunity to sit down in small groups with other people and to hold each other accountable. We talked about this a little bit in the Life Prep U class. The word that came to mind was relationships that are in, intentionally intrusive into our lives. Because the church isn't about that. Roy pointed out in the class this morning, the church used to be all about that a few hundred years ago. That, that you know, there was a certain expectation that if you were out living life contrary to what you said you believed in church, there was somebody who loved you and was going to come to you and say, look, what you're doing isn't really lining up with who you are. And we don't have that anymore. You, you know, the first person you go to and say something, they're out the door. They're like, oh, man, I can go to that church. They would never do that to me. You know, that's so offensive. How dare you do that? You know, and, and, and that's the way that we have been trained to live. Um, we don't want people interfering into our personal life. And the, typically we would say, well, who are you? You're a hypocrite. You know, you do stuff too. Well, who are you to say that I do something? But that's why this has to be in a culture of love and accountability, and you, you nurture those relationships. The, the fight clubs that I'm in, I think most of the guys would say that we, we feel perfectly comfortable pretty much bringing up most things, if not all things, that, in, that are in our life. That we will hold each other accountable, we'll point things out, and we will keep each other's feet to the fire. You need those kind of relationships as well, because it takes being present. It, it doesn't just flying in throwing some money in the offering plate, singing a few songs, listening to a sermon, and I'm out the door to do my life. It involves you giving something that's more valuable than just probably for a lot of you giving stuff, but it involves you giving of your time, of your presence. And that's what Jesus was willing to do, that what he modeled, that he took the time to invest in one. We should be praying for one, serving one, loving one, one at a time. We take God's love for us, and we're conduits to those around us. And it takes an investment. It takes our time. It takes our energy. It takes us being there in the moment. In one of my groups, I wasn't going to say this because I wasn't sure he was going to be here. I won't, I won't look at him because I don't want to know the embarrassing. But in, our, in our, uh, one of our fight clubs, there are three of us, and we, we decided we're going to start doing scripture memory. We're going to... We're going to be really faithful on scripture memory. We're going to learn some verses. And, uh, and two of the guys, me and another guy, we're both pretty much been you know, in church and been disciples and following God and doing this for a long, long time. And um, I, to say, he's been in church, but by his own admission, by the video that he's done here, God's really gotten a hold of his heart. And he showed both of us up because he nailed the two verses that we were memorizing word for word. And I have to admit, I only got the first verse and stumbled through, maybe didn't even try the second verse. And I, I love that. I love that when God starts to get a hold of your heart and you have people around you who are going to encourage you to, to hide God's word in your heart. But what happens when you fall in a spiritual rut? You think, I don't need that anymore. I, I don't need that stuff because I know enough. 
And we need each other to, to remind each other that we're like blind Bartimaeus left to ourselves, that we are literally helpless unless Jesus says, hey, you, I'm going to give you my grace into your life. We have no future. We have no potential for God's kingdom. And so Jesus saw the potential there because his father led him, and he stopped and he helped Bartimaeus. I heard this quote many years ago, and it stuck with me. It says, you impress people from a distance, but you impact them up close. You impress people from a distance, but you impact them up close. Jesus, again, being fully aware of God's will, stopped and eternally impacted this man. And then this man more than likely went out, and he impacted many more for the kingdom of God. So how do you start doing this? How do you start acting upon what we've talked about today? Well, first, let me just say, if if you're not in a K-group, you need to be in a K-group. K-groups are kind of the the first step to really get you into community. Now, in a K-group, there's, you know, 12, 15 people there, and it's not going to be conducive to pour out your whole life and, you know, have this deep accountability that I talked about in Fight Club, but it will be a great start for you in order to be around other Christians, other people who are going your way, people who will help and invest in your life. Every one of our groups here is, is, is led or has an elder or pastor in the group. And so my encouragement to you is, after you're in the group, to go to the elder or pastor in your group and say, I need to be discipled. I, I need someone to invest in my life. Or say, you know, I've been a Christian for a long, long time. I need to be pouring into somebody else's life. Do you have a recommendation? You know, how can I start this? How can I do this? Because right there, you're already in community. It's an opportunity. You have a spiritual leader and an elder or a pastor, and they can set you on the course to get discipled or begin to disciple someone else. That's what we need. We need people who are growing in their faith, not in spiritual ruts, because when we're in spiritual ruts, we can do nothing for God's kingdom. We, we make no difference for God's kingdom. So let me end with this. Yeah, I know you're shocked. You're like, end? I, I told Mitch today this is going to be a 30-minute sermon, and he's like, oh, I don't believe it, and I'm pretty sure I'm putting it close. All right, stay with me. We're almost done. I'm, it's not going to be like I'm almost done and then like 10 minutes later, okay? This question, I'm going to ask the question that was asked in the text. Go ahead and put the question on the screen. What did Jesus ask you? What do you want me to do for you? The disciples said prestige, power, importance, fame, recognition. Barnabas says, I just want to see so I can follow you, Jesus. I, I just want to, I want to go to Jerusalem with you, no matter what's involved in that. I'm going to follow you up the hill, up to Jerusalem. How about you? Honestly, how would you answer that? If Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Well, Jesus, a beach house, I could do some good things for the kingdom down there. You know, Jesus, just a better job. I, you know, I'm just, I feel like I'm a rut in, in a rut in my job. A new job would be nice. It pays more, by the way. But as you, if you're in a spiritual rut, you'll notice that you're in a, probably in a rut in a lot of other areas in your life as well. Your marriage may be in a rut. Your job situation may be in a rut. Because you know what? The, the problem is you, not out there. The problem is your heart is not attuned for God. Think what would be different if we, and I put myself in this category as well, each morning or each night say, God, speak to me. I'm listening. God, what do you want from my heart, from your word? And then you say, God, I, I want to take this 
and I'm going to begin to pray for people. And I want you to show me that one and that other one and that other one who I can have an impact and influence on. And God, just like the model of Jesus, I only do what you do, what you do. You show me, God. You show me, and I'm going to respond to you. And you're going to get the praise. Because why? Because I'm like Barnabas. I'm weak. I'm helpless. I have nothing to offer other than what you give me and bestow upon me by your grace. What would be different? Your, your life would, I promise you, would not be in a rut spiritually any longer. Because you'd be living expectantly. God, show me. I'll do it. You show me and I'll do it. I'll respond. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this story of Bartimaeus and how that you stopped on your journey to the cross, how you paused and pulled away from the masses to make an impact eternally, not just for this man, but for all those who came to you as a result of his life. God, I pray for those who are stuck in a spiritual rut today. They may even be part of that every day of the week reading their Bibles, but they're in a rut because they're unwilling to take what you give them and say, show me who I can make an impact with. Show me who I can disciple. Show me who I can hold accountable. And God, I pray that you will allow them to hear from you and then in turn, turn and pour that back into someone else. God, we want to go and make disciples of all nations. God, we want to see people come to Jesus and be excited about Jesus, but not get into a church and then see all the dead Christians who are in a rut and get discouraged and join them, but help us to be passionate about what you're doing around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.